Today's reading is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. It can be found on page 1081 of the Bible's next year seats as well as on the screen. This is God's word. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were, and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. The word of the Lord. I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, we come into this time and uh, we come from different places, different experiences. We are a group of people um, and if we're brand new here today, we may feel like it's this big group of people that know each other, but we're from... uh, we're all in different places. We're all, we're all kind of coming in, wondering what the other people are thinking, hoping and praying in many cases that people don't see through us and see the real us because we're all more of a mess than we care to admit. We're all more broken than we want people to know. And yet your story of grace through Jesus tells us something no other story or philosophy or religion tells us, that we are even though we're so broken and so much a mess, we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. Not because of what we can do or accomplish, but because of what he has done and accomplished on our behalf. Because God's, uh, your view towards us, God, is to move towards broken and messy lives and to reconnect with those who have sometimes intentionally disconnected with you. And we pray that you connect with us now with your grace in a way that teaches us, that helps us, that sends us on our way in joy. And we all say, Amen. The question of the week last week uh, sort of set up the topic for us, and it said this, what are the most common idols in today's world? A bunch of different answers. I want to read some of them today. There was a landslide, really, of, of uh, replies there, you can answer next week's. It's in the, it's in the, it's in the worship guide. Tear off. What are the common idols? Electronics, and anything associated with them. And followed up, same answer, same person. Work, friendships, family, almost any blessing God has given me, I can turn into an idol. Grr. That's what it says. It's trying to, trying to kind of think like, now who would say grr? You know, who do I know that might have said that? Um, idealistic expectations, status. Somebody else says appearances. Somebody else says American Idol. Everyone wants to be famous. Everyone wants their day in the spotlight. Somebody else says money, sex, beauty, power, fame, independence. 
Somebody says time can be an idol. We can make it our ruler without even realizing it. Someone says financial resources. We forget that we are provided for always. And I, I won't give away who wrote this, but somebody um, wrote very simply the, the idol, most common idols in the world. They wrote Nathan Stuckey. I don't know. I mean, so it made me think, like, maybe Nathan wrote that, which is sort of, which would be one issue, or maybe his new bride, Janae, wrote that, which, which would be a different issue. That's fun. I don't know who wrote that, but thanks for making my sermon introduction easy. It's always good to start with a laugh, especially when you're talking about sin. There's a preacher that I listen to who talks about how when he was a kid, he would go to church and he would ask the preacher, What's the topic today? And the preacher would say, sin, and I'm against it. <laughs> it's like his pat answer. Um, but really, we've been talking about love. We've been talking about love, 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 all these different kinds of love. And, and today we talk about false loves. False loves. And you see in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, I want to key in on where it says, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self. Or in really old translations, there's a lot of talk about the old man because that's literally what it says, old man. We've got the translation old self. So put off the old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Powerful language. There's this old self corrupted by deceitful desires by deceptive desires. Um, What's going on in our world of desire? What's going on in the world of our inner loves? Uh, One scholar writes this book. His name is James Smith. He writes Desiring the Kingdom. He talks a lot about our wayward desires. Um, He's a bit of an academic, but I think this is still very palpable and and speaks to us. He says, We are primordially and essentially agents of love which takes the structure of our desire or longing. We are essentially and ultimately desiring beings, which is simply to say that we are um, essentially and ultimately lovers. To be human is to love, and it is what we love that defines who we are. Our ultimate love is constitutive of our identity. He says, we are talking here about ultimate love, that to which we are fundamentally oriented, what ultimately governs our vision of the good life, what shapes and molds our being in the world. Then he says this, he says, there's a sort of drive or pull, depending on the metaphor, that pushes or pulls us to act in certain ways, develop certain relationships, pursue certain goods, make certain sacrifices, enjoy certain things. And at the end of the day, if asked why we do this, ultimately we run up against the limitations of articulation even though we know why we do it. It's because of what we love. Let me just just include a few more sentences as he begins to give us more of a worldview of this and figure this out. He says, however... That does not mean that we all love the same thing. The structure of love can take different directions, which means that such love can also be misdirected. It depends upon how our love is aimed. What distinguishes us is not whether we love, but what we love. 
at the heart of our being, I like this. He says, it's a kind of love pump that can never be turned off, not even by sin or the fall. A little bit of biblical language there. Rather, the effect of sin on our love pump is to knock it off kilter, misdirecting it, and aiming it, uh, and getting it aimed at the wrong things. Our love can be aimed at different ends or pointed in different directions, and these differences are what define us as individuals and communities. Um, so I don't know how that strikes you, that idea of misdirected love. My, um, when I was growing up, one of the f- favorite places we'd go um, is to this, this relatives who had like a ranch. And so they had horses and they had acres and acres of land. And um, as I got a little older, they pulled out the, um, the handheld BB gun for us kids to play with. And I mean, I was sort of a little town kid. I didn't, this wasn't part of my, you know, shooting things wasn't part of my experience. And so this was just, this is incredible. Um, just to kind of give this and be sent outside, just go play. With a, with a gun, you know, with a BB gun. It was wonderful. It was so good. And, and um, so I remember, but, you know, the problem was it had, it was, it, it always went one way, you know. It always, actually it went all kinds of ways. It, you could try to figure out, you know, the aim wasn't right. So you would aim here, but it'd be four inches off. And there's almost no way that you could get like 20 or 30 feet away from those little cans we were setting up, and actually, with skill, hit the can. It was always luck if you hit it from that far away. But it was a blast anyway. And I remember one time my cousin, and this, she was the one who lived there. She was a little older, and she had her boyfriend over. It was Thanksgiving. And we were out playing with a gun, and she and her boyfriend came out. And when he was going to set up the cans, she said, it was me and her, and he's like 20, 30 feet away. She said, watch this. I'm going to shoot him on his wallet in his back pocket. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, I've been shooting this gun for a while now. I know that's not going to hit the wallet, you know, this big bulging wallet. And she thought, oh, I'll just hit it. It'll be hilarious. And, you know, it's a BB gun. It doesn't hurt that much. It's not going to. But she goes and she aims it. And sure enough, square in the upper back, right, right in the middle. And you can see him just, you know, arch his back. And he's just, he's just beside himself like, what are you doing? He just got shot by his girlfriend, you know. <laughs> in the back from behind without a chance to, I mean, it, you know, it was great. I mean, that was just one of those, that you're, as, as a younger kid, just kind of watching it happen just with delight at this whole, I can't believe this is happening. I can't, believe, I can't tell the grown-ups, but I can't believe this is happening. Um, as we look at this passage, we see a word in verse um, 18 that relates very much to this. So first of all, we've got Jamie's, James Smith's sense of we're missing, missing desires. But then in this passage, if you buy what he's saying, and I really do, I think it's very much along the lines of the Bible, then we also look at verse 18 where it describes this. And it says, um, it talks about how there's an ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And he's really talking about all of us in our transition from not knowing Christ and experiencing the gospel of Jesus to kind of transitioning out of it and looking back on this. So he says the hardening of their hearts, and the word there, hardening, is a word that has this strong connotation of callousness, of skin, you know, developing callous. And it's almost as if it's best to think about our, our false loves, or another way to put it is the idolatry of our heart, as, as something in which we get so comfortable with and we get so calloused in, in our false loves that we don't even realize that 
we're getting wounded and hurt by our own false loves. We don't even realize it's doing damage to us. You may have thought this was a little harsh. I know I did as I read this, and I picture someone walking in to church this morning for the first time, maybe not knowing what we believe or what this is all about, and and reading this, you know, did you notice this first paragraph? Oh, my goodness. You know, don't live like the Gentiles are futile thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God, ignorant, hard hearts, lost all sense of day. It just keeps going. They've got every kind of impurity and sensuality, and they're full of greed. And, and you know, is he talking about me? You know, and in a lot of ways, actually, he's talking about all of us. He's talking about our human nature. This is, um, this is actually a lot of the language in this is a part of the regular New Testament way of speaking about the where all of us are without Christ and the transition that we're in the midst of, attempting to be a part of. This is all of us. In a sense, we really are that bad. As Neil Plantinga says in this quote in the worship guide, and, and he's somebody who, um, in my sabbatical uh, during the summer, I was able to sit at his feet and learn about preaching for a week in Colorado. This is what he says in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. He says, But all forms of idolatry involve us deeply in folly, all idolatry is not only treacherous, but also futile. Human desire, deep and restless and seemingly unfulfillable, keeps stuffing itself with finite goods, but these cannot satisfy. If we try to fill our hearts with anything besides the God of the universe, we find that we are overfed but undernourished. And that day by day, week by week, year after year, we are thinning down to a mere outline of a human being. We are often painfully unaware of our idols, how we got them, and the wounds that they're actually inflicting on ourselves. And Ephesians 4 is here to get into the inner psychology, the anthropology of the person who says, okay, I want to try to be in this Christian thing. I want to try the transformation, whatever that looks like, to have the life of Christ in my life. What does it look like? And it's giving us a sense of how you can't just say, well, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to get this list of things to do, and now I do those things instead of those things. But it goes way deeper, and it involves peeling back the layers. And in fact, good, solid Christian growth involves regular, incremental peeling back the layers and going deeper and deeper and deeper. When's the last time you peeled back the layers on some issue in your life and just kind of stopped and said, okay, okay, money. Where's my money going? And not just because you want to save more or because you, you know, have quite enough to do rent last month or whatever. No, not for, how about just to say, where is my love? What do I love? Go back the layers. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. Um, how about your anger? What do you get angry about? Have you peeled back the layers? What makes you really angry? What sends me through the roof? What has me lying awake at night, just frustrated, just ang- agitated? What does that say about what I love? How about what do you obsess over? What are you thinking about during work? when you should be working? What are you thinking about when you should be studying and you keep going back to this? Where is your mind? Where are you? And what does it say about what you love? How about criticism? How well are you at receiving criticism? I know I'm not always that great. 
what does that say about where my love is and where your love is? That it just can destroy you. Just a few words, just one critique. Or the fear of it. You keep going. Another good question to ask is, what do you never remember to do? But what do you always remember to do? What do you never seem to have time for? What do you always seem to have time for? And what does that say about what you love? And you can go on and on and ask these questions. Peel back the layers. Peel them back daily. The Bible's, the Bible's full of this kind of philosophy that um, you need to keep wrestling with this. You don't just kind of sign on to the Christian faith and then now you've converted and now you're in and you were out. You know, as this passage is, there's gent- don't live like the Gentiles. It's not like, well, now, you've, now you're not that anymore. It's, it's like you need to keep remembering the psychology. You need to keep renewing your mind and understanding what's going on and peel it back and peel it back and find the data of your heart. Peel it back so that you become someone who's daily asking the question, why? Why do I do it that way? Why do I live like that? Why do I keep ending up in this terrible place? Why do I keep going to this thing to kind of self-medicate? Why, 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 why? And in the process of that, God, you find, you know, there's only so much peeling back you can do. God actually begins to do the real work, peeling back things and showing you things that if you knew he was going to show, you might not have even started the process in the first place. I love the story of, um, of Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, it's a, it's a great fantasy story. So somehow he becomes a dragon. He becomes this horrible monster. He transforms into this. And then he tells a story after it's all said and done. He says, well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I'd had no skin, and threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You think of me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms, but I know they've made, I know they've no muscle and are pretty moldy compared with Caspians, but I was so glad to see them. After a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Edmund replies, dressed you with his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but... He did something or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact, and then suddenly I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. And Edmund says, no, it wasn't a dream. You've seen Aslan. <laughs> I, I love that analogy because I think some of you have experienced this and you, and you know, probably with all too much pain, you've been in a place where only God could, only the loving God could could dig deep enough and peel back far enough for you to get in the kind of place where you could receive his grace and love the way you really needed to. Uncover the places and the cracks in your life where the gospel and the grace of God actually needed to finally take some root so that they could blossom in the ways you need. 
And notice, and I like this analogy also because it does justice to kind of the two sides of this passage that we're looking at because the passage is not just about um, taking off and peeling off the layers of the old self, but there's also a putting on that we refer to. Now, a lot more time is given to the taking off in this passage. I think that's a little more the focus today, but there is talk of putting on. And, you know, maybe like Eustace, we're all in that place where you can do a lot of work yourself to peel off, and maybe you still need God's help to peel deeper than you can get yourself. But you can do work in peeling the layers off, but there's almost nothing you can do. There is nothing you can do. I won't qualify it. There's nothing you can do to create the new self that you're going to put on. If you look at uh, verse 24, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is sort of like the, um, the, the Christian wardrobe change in a sense, right? It's like there's something to take off and there's something to put on. And the filthy rags that we have created ourselves and picked ourselves and put on ourselves, we have to eventually see them for what they are, take them off. But the new clothes, they're, they don't even often feel, they chafe as we put them on. They feel awkward as we put them on. They're not us. They are foreign to us. But you know what? They were set down at our feet. We didn't create them. We didn't buy them with our money or our hard-earned or our, our works. We didn't choose them, we didn't make them, we didn't buy them, they were a gift to us. That's what it's like in the Christian life, is that the new self you put on, there's something easy to it. There is, there's both, right? There's excruciating reality that if you've been a Christian for a long time, you read this passage and you go, yes, yes, I need to hear that again. Still stuck in those same things. Why, why is it so hard? And then there's this other part of, why is it also, how is it possible that it's also so easy? that the true righteousness that is is mentioned at the end is just something that is created by God for you and laid in front of you to put on. Why is it, how can it be that this is so difficult and painful and yet also so simple as Jesus says, the burden is easy, my yoke is light. How is it possible that grace can be such a complete gift that we can do nothing to deserve? And that's how it is. And as you experience that, it's so foreign sometimes and putting on this new self and trying to figure out the rewiring of this and who am I because I'm so dominated by these false loves. In the end, in many ways, this ends up being something you just say, Lord, please dress me. Will you help me? The work of putting on the new self in the life of the person who's experienced God's grace, the work is the work of prayer. It's it's ongoing, increment by increment, inch by inch praying that God will help you understand this new gift of a new self that comes to you of no work of your own through God's grace. In fact, I think it's so foreign to us that I really think we need to emphasize as we look at this passage, the community element. You might look and say, that doesn't doesn't talk much about doing this in community, except that it's extraordinarily implicit. Here's a letter that is written to a group of people that this pastor, Paul, has spent two years with, and he, and he says right here, he says, um, you've, towards the beginning, or actually towards verse 20, he says, this is not the way of life that you've learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him. So this is referring back to that relationship in community as he teaches them about this new internal psychology of the Christian. And, he's, and what's happening again? 
He's looking, he's writing to a community and they're sitting down before this letter together. It's a letter written to a group of people to a church. And here we go again through these same issues that he taught them years before. Now writing from afar because guess what? They needed to hear it again and they need to keep hearing it and they need to keep working on it in community. You almost have no chance of this kind of taking off and putting on if you try to do it on your own. If you aren't entering into community where you're being real, where you are known and you know others, where you are um, working around strategies almost together of how do you do this in today's world? How do you take off and put on this new identity of Christ that's so foreign? Everyone I'm with at work doesn't have the same worldview of how life is and what's important. Everyone in my family doesn't think this way. Everyone in my neighborhood doesn't think this way. We need each other. We need to be in groups. We need to be close to some other people who are dedicated to this same journey, the baptismal journey, together looking back and saying, what does it mean that Jesus had us get baptized as we enter into this community? What does it mean that you go under the water with Christ's death and you come out with new life, with his resurrection? What is it that his identity through his death and resurrection are stamped over me as my identity? We need to wrestle with that together. It's hard work. It's step-by-step rewiring of how we live and rewiring and and redirecting our mis-aimed desires, really, isn't it? John Calvin, a Reformation theologian, Um, deep, deep, deep student of scripture. He put it this way. If your knowledge of Christ doesn't lead to the mortification of the flesh, another kind of theological buzzword for this idea of the old self and taking off and putting off the old self. It's mortification of the flesh, the killing of the old self. If your knowledge of Christ doesn't lead to the mortification of the flesh, you have a counterfeit, insincere, false faith. That's our journey together. Over and over, together, trying to figure out how dead is my old self? How dead is it? And how can I kill it more? How can I put it, put it to rest? How can we do that? How are you doing that? Tell me, what's worked? Where have you seen progress? I love, I love to see progress in either one of these fronts and, and to hear tangible stories. Anytime someone hints at it, I say, let's meet for coffee and tell me. How did you get past that area of sin in your life? Wow, tell me more. How did, you, how did the grace of Jesus, you know, putting on the new self, how did that become, oh my goodness, tell me more about how that worked, about what spoke to you in scripture or what helped you in community. Those, need, those stories need to be ricocheting off each other because we almost, the, the, the uphill climb is so, so steep. As David Wells puts it in uh, another great theology book, uh, God in the Wasteland, he says, why do people choose to substitute God over himself? Probably the most important reason is that it obviates accountability to God. We can meet idols on our own terms because they are our own creations. They are safe, predictable, and controllable. There's a lot of inertia to our false desires. We need to be in community to put on that new self. It's a we kind of thing. And as verse 23 says, it's mental work. Did you catch that? How much of this scripture text relates to the not just the heart, although that's there a lot, but also the mind, to be made new in the attitude of your minds. It's a whole rethinking of what life is about. We need each other to reinforce this new mind 
and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. There's a lot of thinking that goes on in the rewiring. You know, you look at one area of your life, maybe you're worrying about money, worrying about how much you have and whether it's enough. And the gospel, as it makes its way into that crack in your life, just speaks right against it. You kind of rewire your mind and realize the gospel basically says, you have the riches of Christ. It's like a king who owns the whole kingdom and you've been brought in as a child. The adoption papers are firm and final and they say that you now are a prince or princess in this kingdom. You've got it all. And you're saying, ah, what's in my checkbook? Ah, the gospel just speaks to every kind of false desire. Lust. The gospel says, you've got, the mo- you've got the greatest intimacy of all that satisfies your heart more than anything else. You've got the Father who has decided against all odds as you've run away to reconnect with you, as you've pursued really a divorce with God with every ounce of your being, it almost seems sometimes, God has reconnected and re-signed the papers and said, we're linked, I love you. The desire we need most in life, we have met already in Christ. You can go through every issue, every, every false God, every idol, and see how the gospel just speaks right to it and brings new life. It's rewiring and we need to do it together. And it is a long journey. So let me close with uh, the summary of Eustace. I love how the narrator kind of sums it up. This is written, you can tell this is written by a Christian who is intentionally drawing the parallels here. As C.S. Lewis writes this, he summarizes on the next page. He says, It would be nice and fairly true to say that, quote, from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome. But most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun. Mm. Let's pray. God, I pray that you begin your cure, your love cure on us. May we be honest enough today to see our wayward desires, to see where they're leading, to let this get very specific for us. May your Holy Spirit help us to be very honest, but also help us to get over the hurdles to pursue others, to get real and not superficial about what this journey is all about. We just need each other so deeply. There is a new life and a new identity waiting for us to put on. There are explosive results that come from a community of those putting on that sacrificial, selfless new identity. And there's a city that needs us with all of its needs. Would you, through your spirit... Bring the cure and bring it strong in this place and in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move towards another act of worship, which is offering, uh, the musical offering will play. You have a chance to put in a card. Uh, you know, maybe you're on the newer end of the spectrum. We're not trying to get your money in this time. We're not trying to pressure you. Um, we would love to know who you are, how you found out about us, how we can help connect you more. And uh, if you're looking at this as an act of worship in your faith community, then uh, this is a time where you can give to God of what he's given you. And on the screen is a prayer that we'll say together 
as an act of worship preparing for this time. Let us pray. Lord, you have given us many gifts so far this year. We thank you for watching over us and guiding us. Thank you for your faithfulness and for promising never to leave us. Now we offer to you what you have given us. Please use us and our gifts to help others know about you. Amen.